Yeah, hello and welcome back to Long Ball Football Ball. Uh, this is episode eight with myself, Albert, and my brother Barney. How you doing, Barney? You had a good week? Yeah, but a very nice week. I just got in a bit of trouble though. I had Beth next door in the bedroom doing um, her pregnancy yoga on Zoom. Nice. I sort of forgot about that and I was in the living room and I've just got myself a CD player from a CD collection I've got and uh, I was blaring out uh, Mob Deep, the infamous. <laughs> <laughs> and it, she, she sort of interrupted her, preg- uh, her pregnancy yoga vibes, particularly in the meditation <laughs> section. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what they say about uh, playing Mozart to an unborn baby? You're doing just like the Mob Deep version. <laughs> it's a good track to them. I forgot how good that album is. But... Amazing album, yeah. <laughs> How about you? You had a good week? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Um, obviously, not much to do here now that we're in lockdown. The highlight of my week was probably cycling down to... They've got a Portuguese cafe in Leighton that I've been to a couple of times. Luckily, they're still doing takeaways, so I managed to cycle down there on my lunch break, get some nice treats and practice speaking Portuguese quite badly, which is quite fun. The pasta de natas? Six, yeah, and two oh, donuts. Right. Yeah, oh, lovely. lovely. Standard, uh, light lunch. <laughs> by the way, I mean, when um, a while ago when I was googling, Ty, by the way, I called Ty Rabbit. I called him Ty Rabbit again last week. You've just done it then as well. I've just done it then as well. Um, <laughs> when I was googling Ty Rabbit on Google, one of the images that comes up is a picture of a custard tart. And <laughs> <laughs> he's loving Which... life in Portugal, mate. He's moved to Lisbon. He's loving it. <laughs> Not sure how to transition from that into the news. Um, oh, never mind. No, I've got nothing. <laughs> got nothing. Well, without further ado, we'll move on to the news of the week. Not much news this week, Barney, but the big talk is obviously with uh, the international break coming up. The Portuguese national team announced their selection for the upcoming games and only two Liga Nosh faces this week. Yeah, so it was um, Sergio Oliveira. Obviously, Pepe's injured, isn't he, at the moment? So I don't think he got called up um, from Porto. And then, um, yeah, Paulinho from Braga as well. Nice surprise to see him in there for me. Yeah, really happy to see him in there, to be honest. I think, you know, it's it's lovely to see him recognised with an international cap after some uh, some really good performances. We've both been really impressed with him so far. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was a little surprised it was his first cap. Um, mm, me too. He's certainly performed well last season. But yeah, I think a really good player for the Portuguese national side. In terms of what he's doing at Braga, you know, he's obviously the main man up top, but he can link up well with the, the attack on wingers, which obviously Portugal have. I think it's quite good at linking the play. I think that's one of his strengths. So I think it's a great move and, you know, great time for him as well. If he can keep, if he can get in there again, you know, the Euros coming up in the summer. Um, yeah, it could be there. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's interesting because I, I don't know, I don't know what you thought, but personally, I didn't know anything about him outside of what I've watched for him playing for Braga in the last couple of years. I just kind of assumed that he was some kind of top division mainstay, you know, that he'd been a, top performer maybe came through the youth academy at one of the big clubs but when you dig into where he's come from it's it's quite fascinating actually i did a bit of research he started as a youth player at a club called santa maria um a team that currently plays in the third tier they've only played in the second tier once you know it's that kind of shows that their level he then went on to play for a team called cd trofens uh, another lower league team mainly in and around the second tier uh, but before Braga and his big break really was in 2013 when he moved to Gil Vicente. Uh, we obviously know them for playing in the top division now. Uh, they were a top division team when he joined for them. He did pretty well, scored 28 goals in the three seasons that he was there uh, and then obviously moved on to Braga. But he's not actually got off the mark this season, which I've kind of forgotten about. He's not scored in the league. He's got two assists, um, but he's shown some great techniques, some great performances. And of course, he scored in the Europa League scored against Zoria Lahansk and he was man of the match against AEK Athens with a golden assist. I guess you can um, draw similarities to Jamie Vardy's story. I, saw, I mean, he's, what is he, 28, 29, 27 maybe? Yeah. But like, he's, he's definitely not, not young. He's like quite late on in his career now and he's only just sort of got his first cap. So I've really liked watching him. I, we know he scored goals last season and like you said, this season he hasn't got off the mark yet, but he's still a class player. We've seen, we've seen what he can do. Yeah, and it was interesting what you said before as well about what role he could play. Uh, in the national team because we've had that chat before I think about what striking options Portugal have got they're obviously playing Cristiano Ronaldo up front a lot of the time um, but outside of that uh, Andre Silva who's in great form uh, not playing at a very prestigious club at the moment but you know undoubtedly in great form but I think there is a gap for somebody you know that out and out striker well I hope he gets on and yeah I'll be keeping an eye on their games to see if he gets a game just going back to the other player we mentioned Sergio Oliveira he's a man who's having a fantastic season 
he's already contributed four goals and three assists from central midfield in only six games. What do you make of him so far? Yeah, I think uh, I want to talk about him a bit later when we go into the Porto game. For me, I think he is one of these uh, one of the players in the league who can get a starting place in that Portuguese team. He's just so effective for that midfield position. I think even when he's playing a sort of deeper role, he's still effect- effective in attack as well. Um, great on free kicks, uh, good delivery for crosses and stuff. Another one, I think, who could potentially be starting in the Euros in the summer as well. Yeah, and obviously we focus on the Premier League players playing for the national team. Uh, of which there are not many, and a few of them dropped out since the last time. Obviously, in the last international selection, we had Pepe, who's injured. We also had Sequeira, the left-back from Braga, and Bruno Varela, the goalkeeper from Vitoria Guimaraes, both of whom were injury cover in the first place, so they didn't get a look in this time, despite Bruno Varela being nominated as the best goalkeeper in the league for September-October, something I agree with. But there's a lot more representation in the under-21s as well, because you were looking at their selection. Yeah, it was. Um, so I think the under it's, uh, the under twenty ones have got a qualifying tournament. I think for the under twenty one World Cup. So there's no under twenty three for the moment. So there are a few players who've dropped from that team into the under twenty ones. Mainly from um, Liga Nos, there's a, one or two mainly Benfica players out on a load of other leagues. It was just the only interesting thing I found really was when you look into the players and the amount of minutes and games they're getting currently for the teams. It's it's quite interesting. Sporting sort of dominating it in terms of minutes they've given to the young players, uh, Nuno Mendes. Uh, Daniel Branganga and Carreira um, in the centre back, and then Port as well. I mean, um, Conscious has sort of given Fabio Vieira quite a lot of game time this season, yeah, uh, which is good to see. And Diego Leta as well. He's got one game, I think, this season. I think it's just interesting, really, just because all the Benfica players who are in that team are out on loan, apart from one, um, Inconcalo Ramos, a player. I, I think he's got ten minutes in the Europa League. I've never seen him play, to be honest. No, I think it's as it's a strong team who I think have um, underperformed in the past. I think they failed to qualify for the European under-21 European Championships in 2019. Um, and they came second to Romania in their group um, and lost them twice, which was quite surprising, I think. But when you look at these names, particularly this season, like I said, Sporting giving a lot of game time, Porto as well with a few players. Um, another one, I think their captain's uh, Diego Queiroz, who's at Famila Sal um, and he got his first start this week and I think he'll be looking to sort of try and cement a starting place in that back line but yeah I, I think it's a, a recognisable team of players I think sometimes when you look at the England Southern 21 team there's quite a lot of names who aren't in the Premier League uh, playing low leagues but this one this Portuguese team is full of uh, full of players we've seen play quite a bit of football this season Well we've rattled through the new section this week Barney but that's because since the last time we spoke there's been some huge games and some really big turnarounds in the Liga Nosh table so we're going to be discussing at length Benfica Sporting Lisbon and Braga and some of the action near the lower end of the table Right, Barney, well, since the last time we spoke, it's fair to say it's been an absolute car crash for Benfica. It's incredible to think that the last time we were discussing them, they were top of the league with five wins from five, looking looking completely imperious at the top of the table. But since then, they've gone on a huge downward spiral. And funnily enough, it all started this time last week when we were recording and they were playing Boa Vista. Just to give you a glimpse behind the scenes, we had a little discussion about how we expected them to win that game, which I swiftly edited out afterwards once we realised that they'd lost 3-0 to Boa Vista, who at that point was second from bottom in the table. I mean, what did you make of that game? It was just crazy. Yeah, it was completely out of the blue. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, we recorded the podcast. I went to bed. I didn't actually even check the score. I think I woke up <laughs> the next day. Yeah, it was unbelievable. I think... I think Boa Vista are very smart. They went to a different formation from what they usually done. And that really worked. I think also, Alba Fedes, who I mentioned when he arrived, I was excited to see him. He had a great game as an Angel Gomez again. It was amazing to watch, really. And for me, the thing that stood out was was uh, George Jesus' management. We should say we should say now that we don't we don't really want to be doing a lot of tactical analysis. You know, we don't work in the game. We've not play, never played football to a high level, so we don't want to go in too much on kind of criticizing managerial decisions and stuff. But the way he went about managing that game was just bemusing to me because he set them up in the usual way, the way you would have expected them to win the game. But they very quickly went two 0 down. That's when the manager has to be making decisions to change the game, and it just seemed like he didn't know what to do. Like he didn't know what his response to this situation should be because it was so unexpected. Fair play to Boa Vista who scored two really fantastic goals and I think they were probably quite surprised to be 2-0 up. But it was just the way that Benfica responded was pretty awful. It seemed like Jorge Jesus's only solution to going 2-0 behind was just, well, I'm just going to throw on as many wingers as I can. I mean, he took 
he took Gilberto off at right back and put a winger on at right back. He was just throwing on wingers left, right and centre, just thinking his attitude seemed to be almost one of arrogance that if I just put on as many good players onto the pitch as possible, then they'll naturally win. And I think perhaps he should have shown a bit more respect to Boa Vista, sought to shore the team up defensively, grind out a couple of goals the hard way. But as it went, it was a fantastic win for Boa Vista. I was really impressed by the way they managed to turn it around. No, it was a brilliant win for them. And it's just... Um... Yeah, I definitely need to give them um, immense amount of credit. But then like you touched on there about how it's all about their reactions and sort of going behind. Similar things happened in the Rangers game for me in the Europa League on Thursday. Mm. They just seem to like have no answer. I know obviously they went a man down in that game, but it just, it just yeah, the decisions were crazy, like you said. Well, just to touch on the Rangers game, of course, people might have been wondering whether the Boa Vista match was just a blip. And it seemed like it was because Benfica did really well to go 1-0 up against uh, Rangers and they really look like the dominant team, their usual dominant selves, ready to score a few. But it all changed when Nicolas Otamendi got his red card and Rangers scored two very quick goals. Uh, it was fascinating to watch, really, because the game was a really exciting opening 20 minutes. Benfica going ahead, the red card, the two goals for Rangers. Uh, and then after that, it was just incredible because the Benfica players just didn't know how to handle the situation again you know I think part of it comes down to the mentality of the players so used to winning maybe expecting to win but they just seemed stunned after that they just and they offered absolutely nothing and I wasn't surprised that uh, Rangers got their third goal I think I messaged you about during that game because as soon as Otamendi got sent off I up until that point like you said Benfica looked fantastic they were playing really well I thought and um, they sort of had Rangers number but I thought it was he was so quick to get on that second centre back to make it a four again at the back. Mm. When I thought their their most promising part of that game was those the midfield four and the front two who were just causing Rangers so many problems. And I just thought he was perhaps a little quick to revert to that. I, sometimes you see managers give it a little while, you know, just see how things pan out for five or so minutes, just to see if they can get away with it. I know he had two inexperienced wing backs sort of who would have to then play a bit more of a central defence role. But yeah, I just, the best thing about that team, he sort of just stopped straight away and just, just to get Jardel on and, you know, who struggled against Ryan Kent the rest of that game as well with his pace. I think it's difficult though, Bonnie. I mean, I agree. I think that shape is something that would have been preferable in that situation. But George Jesus is never going to trust uh, Tavares and Gonzalez, who let's remember Gonzalez is essentially a winger to play centre-back. There's no way he's going to do that. So, and, in, and to be fair, I'm not sure Tavares could be trusted to play centre-back. But yeah, you're absolutely right. They just that, Having that man sent off just absolutely sucked their creativity and they lost all of their threat. In all fairness, they did manage to get two goals back and make it 3-3, which I think Rangers will be really disappointed with. Yeah, no, I think you're right. We do have to give Benfica credit for getting themselves a point from that game. But I think the thing we need to be looking at really is that initial reaction to the red card and how they just capitulated quite quickly after that. I'm not I don't necessarily think it was Jorge Jesus' decisions that got them the point in the end. I think it's sort of just the players sort of having that bit more class than Rangers. I think Rafa was the best player, best Benfica player on the pitch. I think he was the one player trying to make something happen. Even while they were three one down, I thought he was the one player really making good runs and trying to make something happen. Well, let's be honest, a lot of the rest of the players looked a bit uh, looked a bit shell shocked. Well, Albert, let's let's get into this Braga mm. game because yes. some of Jorge Jesus' decisions to play certain players is what's confusing me in this run of three games. I think the big thing for me, and something I have no answer for, is I've written down, why no Grimaldo? Mm. There was no, he, he came on against Rangers, he came on against in this Braga game, and I just don't understand why he's not starting him going with Tevez. He made such a big impact when he came on against Braga as well, which was the bizarre thing. I mean, let's just let's circle back to the beginning of this game for a second. They've had a terrible result against Boa Vista. They've had a very shaky draw against Rangers. At this point, what you're looking for is Benfica to answer their critics and to put, you know, remove any doubt from their players' minds by getting a convincing win. And it was just the absolute opposite of that. It was, it ended 3-2, but at one point, Benfica were 3-0 down. To compare the fortunes of the two clubs here, that was Braga's fifth straight league win. And that was Benfica's third game in a row, conceding three goals. I cannot believe some of the Benfica defending in this game. How have they gone from having Ruben Diaz, one of the best centre-back prospects in the world, to what they've got now. I mean, to be fair, Vertonghen looks decent, but Otamendi is an absolute basket case at the moment. It's insane. The way he gave away that third goal was just, for those who haven't seen it, dig out the highlights, but it's just an incredibly easy ball over the top, which 
He just has to deal with it. I don't care if the keepers come out. It's his job to deal with it. Head it away. Kick it away. The keeper doesn't make it easy for him because the keepers come out of his box, which is a bit of a bizarre decision, but Otamendi shouldn't have... Albert, do you think there's some questions on Twitter about whether Otamendi could speak the same language as uh, the, the goalkeeper? You don't need to speak any that. language to just say <laughs> my ball or mine or just shout and then head the ball away. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, you're completely right. Like, it wasn't it wasn't the keeper's fault. It was absolutely his... Like, he should have dealt with it before he even bounced. It was so poor. I mean, the thing for me is I, I do not think that this back four is suitable for playing the system that Jorge Jesus wants to play. I think they're playing far too high up the pitch. pitch. They're also having to sort of get up the pitch in a, a very quick pace as well, which I don't, I don't think suits Osamendi at all. I think Gilberto at right back is such a drop-off from Almeida. Yeah. Like, I think that's becoming very evident. And you think particularly at his age, he's not a young player, he's an experienced player from the Brazilian league. You think he'd be a bit better than that. And then, yeah, and, and then just to go back to my original question, I just cannot figure out why Grimaldo is not starting in these last two games. I know they've played, what is it, three games in seven days now, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. But if you rest him for the Rangers game, start him for the Braga mm-hmm. game, like, mm-hmm. it's, it's absolutely madness. Yeah, I think this, I think this is going to not be the last time we see this with this back line. I think there's, there's definitely goals. And that's, I mean, they started quite well in the, in the beginning of the league and defensively. But I think now the cracks are starting to show, and particularly with the loss of them, particularly with the loss of Andre Almeida, I think that's the cracks are really starting to show for me. Well, I want to have a look at this team in detail for a moment and have a look at where they're going wrong. First things first for me, as you've alluded to now, fullbacks are a problem. Gilberto, it's easy to sit here and hammer him. I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say, he's not showing any outstanding ability. He offers nothing going forward, and they'll be grateful when Andre Almeida comes back. Tavares at left back, I do like him. But he's a very raw talent. He's got lots of ability. He's great. He can be great going forward. He can be great defensively. He's you know got a strong physique. He's got good pace. But he's a young player and he's very raw. And I think he started the last three games over Grimaldo, which I don't understand because when Grimaldo came on, he made such a difference. You know that experience, that class that he's got going forward. He looks a constant threat down the left hand side, creating chances for Severovic. Central midfield is a huge problem for Benfica as well. And what I'm going to say is that I don't think George Jesus knows his best team. He doesn't know who to play as central midfield. For this game, he started Samaris alongside Pitsy. I think the game before that, he started Terapt alongside Pitsy. I think the game before that, he started Weigl alongside Pitsy. I mean, what does that do for the player's confidence that he's played three different central midfielders now and he doesn't trust either of them? Samaris came off at half-time for Terapt, which was... You know, just shows what George Jesus thinks of his performance. And the problem is, the options he's got at central midfield clearly don't fit the system he's trying to play because he's playing essentially a 4-4-2 with two out-and-out strikers. Waldschmidt's playing slightly deeper than Darwin Nunes. The wingers are playing very wide. They're not cutting in much at all. Their job is really to get balls into the box. And so they need those players in central midfield to both create press going forward and do a defensive job. And I think he's just asking too much from the players he's got. Pizzi could play, I think Pizzi could be a good central midfielder as part of a three perhaps. But the other players he's got are just not the players you can rely on to do such a important and such a hard-working job really. I think uh, um, Flamengo last season, I caught one game of them in the, what did they play, Liverpool in the, in the World, Club World Cup. Club World Cup, that's it. Um, they had that midfielder Gerson. I think he's on loan from Roma, but a Brazilian midfielder. He had that. He has the energy and the stamina to just box to box all game. And I think I think you're right. I think Pitsy is the man to pair. It's just who in, they need that Gerson figure um, to play that role next to Pitsy. I think. And there's no one there for me. Um, like you mentioned, Tarab, Gabriel, um, Weigel. Hmm. They're not these dynamic midfielders. They're, they're not very pacey. They're not up and down. Um, I think that's the big thing. And it's so for me, going forward, it's going to be a real question about whether Jorge Jesus is actually going to adapt his system to the squad he's got rather than sort of demanding his squad to sort of change to that system. But like you said previously, he is the manager to sort of change players and be able to sort of get new things out of them. Um, so we've just got to see if he can do that with one of those mid central midfielders, but I can't really see anyone who's sort of a prime candidate for that. If he's going to make it work for me, he's going to have to move into a three in midfield and then sacrifice one of the strikers, which of course he's reluctant to do because they're in such great form, but it would work better perhaps if you had someone like Weigel playing the single pivot as a defensive midfielder and then maybe 
two of either Pizzi, Torapt or Gabriel playing together uh, with a bit more freedom to get up the pitch with that defensive support. But like I said, George Jesus is, just doesn't know who to play in the majority of the positions on the pitch. And in fact, the only position he seems dead certain on is centre-back playing where he's played Vertonghen and Otamendi together every single game so far that they've both been at the club. And while Vertonghen's been fine for me, uh, Otamendi's really let him down a few times now. Yeah, so who is there to potentially come into that um, position to replace Otamendi? Well, they've got the young defender, Ferro, who was at the club last season. I mentioned him a few podcasts ago. I thought he was a good player. Uh, but he definitely had a big drop in form when Benfica were going through their rough patch last year. I think a lot of the fans kind of turned against him. I think he's been somewhat of a scapegoat for that period of last season. Uh, and of course, they've got Jean-Claude Toribo, the centre-back they signed from Barcelona on loan to come in. I think he's injured at the moment, so they're waiting for him to be available. But I can definitely see Otamendi coming out for him, at least you know the first game that Toribo is available, giving him a shot at centre-back. Yeah, and then I think the only other thing to look at after that is just, you know, 15 million for Otamendi is still outrageous. Um, I, I want to talk, I do want to talk about Braga as well in this game. Um, their performance was fantastic. They dipped in the week against uh, Leicester. They got thrashed 4 0 there. Bit of a shame, that. And I was a little worried. I know I was a little worried for them going into this game because, you know, when you've got Ian Acho tearing you apart, I think you've got, <laughs> got to be worried. But. I really want to talk about Carlos Carvajal. I think in the first two episodes of this podcast, uh, when they lost their first two games, I was overcritical of them. Um, and I think naively so. I think I was still having my mind, you know, his time at Swansea and the, how the British press sort of, they did hammer him for sort of having this particular style of play he wanted to do. But when you actually look at what he's doing at Braga, it is really this ability to uh, adapt teams for the games. Um I thought it was so brave to go 4-4-2 and sort of go man-to-man with Benfica. I don't think many teams have done that this season at all. And there was big calls as well. Um, he gave uh, Davies to Francesco Mora, uh, the left winger, and um, Vito Tormenezov got another game at centre-back, a young uh, defender, not their usual sort of three they go with. And I just thought the system was perfect. They, they, they got their goals, they went ahead, and then you know you had Gelano playing essentially left wing-back for the second half just to sort of block Benfica out. You know, we know Gelano is such a attacking player mm. for Carlos Carvajal to sort of get him to sort of go against his natural instinct really and just sort of sit in that left wing back position I thought was fantastic I also want to give credit to the two signings he's made in um, central midfield in Castro and Ali Maserati mm, definitely um, a, a position they clearly need to strengthen with Perlini going back to sporting and I think you know Castro you could have even seen him as a bit of a gamble with his age but he's come in and he's been fantastic I thought Ali Maserati as well when you talk about Benfica's center midfield partnership they could learn a lot from them too. I thought they were they worked perfectly together. Yeah, Ali Maserati particularly had a great game. I think he set up one of the goals. And the debutant Moro, did he score two? What a debut for him. I mean, that's one that he'll remember for a long time. Yeah, so I, I looked into him because um, he was on loan last season as a uh, Liga Pro. And I think he was being played at left-back for his Academia Coimbra. Nice. Uh, he got two goals in 10 games, not much game time. But um, yeah, he's obviously been called up. He looks all right. Yeah, this is a really big moment for them. I think this, this they can really build in this game, I think, definitely in confidence and belief. Um, and I think there was a great article on Tugger Scout a few weeks ago now just talking about Braga and Sporting's potential of actually potentially challenging for this league this season. Um, it's obviously early doors, but this is a real big statement from Braga, I think, and a great win to have under their belt. Yeah, fantastic. And obviously, we'll give a big shout-out to Tugger Scout. That's a... Uh... English language website that we both read regularly by a journalist called Alex Gonsalves. Uh, you can follow them on Twitter and look on their website, tugascout.com. Well, a fantastic win for Braga, a win that puts them up to second in the table ahead of Benfica and only behind league leaders sporting scene. So Sporting played on Saturday uh, against Vitoria Grimaris, um, a game we recommended. Ended 4-0 to Sporting. Um, Nuno Santos getting a goal in his 100th game. and Pote, Should we call him Pote from now on this podcast? I'm not sure, um, Barney. Do we qualify to give him a nickname? I was calling him Pedro well, Gonçalves. It feels a bit more formal. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier to, for me to pronounce if you say Pote. So. Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> so he got two as well, which is you know an incredible run on four. Then Gervan Guerrero came on and got the fourth. Um, Albert, I asked you last week if you thought 
when they played last season, that was their strongest eleven. I think the, this team that they set out, they started with in this game for me was the best. I think that's their strongest team. They had their usual back five. Um, they had uh, Paulinho, Joao Mario in the middle, uh, Nuno Santos on the left, Spora in the middle, and Pote on the right. And uh, I really wanted to talk about Spora. Really, um, I think he's made such an impact. Uh, on this team and I think it's really helped in the system he is a big striker but I think he's not just there to sort of get on the end of things he really does create stuff he's good with his feet um, and he's really good at linking up play I think dropping in a little bit um, a, a bit like you know like Harry Kane's been doing more this season mm. where he's sort of been offering a bit more creativity for me it's just the final piece in the puzzle I think like I said the midfield's perfect with Pally and Jamer I think that's a real nice balance and then yeah um, Nuno Santos as well just uh, it was his 100th league game so a bit of a, a moment for him he looks quite angry to be taken off Barney yeah he came off about I think 65 minutes and he was he looked furious he sort of threw threw something on the ground as you usually do when you're angry and <laughs> going onto the bench um, I'm not sure if it was just because it was a 100th league game wanted to get four minutes but it did get me thinking about the sort of amount of players in those positions that Almiron's got to sort of rotate and sort of keep happy, if you will. Like, Jovan Cabral um, coming on late, um, hasn't started the last few games. Kamasha as well, who I think they signed from Liverpool last season. Mm. Uh, Jolson Fernandes, who's in the under-21 squad, and uh, Plata as well. I'm not sure if he's injured, but there's a lot of wingers in that squad um, and a lot of players who probably think they should be starting. And it's one of those horrible situations when you're a manager, isn't it, where you've got to keep those players happy and sort of rotate them to sort of ensure they're getting enough game time. Well, it's a bit of a cliche, but as they say, it's a a good problem for a manager to have, even if dealing with it day-to-day isn't much fun. But yeah, I totally agree with what you just said. You watched this game live, I've only watched the highlights. But I noted down that Spora was playing with so much more confidence, and I think if they can get him scoring goals a bit more regularly and contributing to the wins... As you say, he'll be he'll be a fantastic asset to their club. I think it's only fair, though, that we do touch on Vittoria Gemarais because they're a team that we like to talk about a lot. Obviously, it's more documented that they've got some English players amongst their ranks. Uh, and as much as we want to big up those English players, as much as we can, it's fair to say that Issa Suleiman didn't have his best game in a Vittoria shirt, did he? No, he got, he got caught out a few times in this game. Um, he was definitely at the fault for the two of the goals for me. Mm. Um, he lost the ball high up the pitch and then there was this crazy one almost like Otamendi Benfica where he just sort of misjudged it completely and it just sort of bounced over him and the striker was through the thing I noticed because I know you picked up on this performance but I felt like he was given the ball so many times they had um, a young left back in Mensa I think he's on loan from Salzburg right. he just did not help uh, Isa Suleiman out at all this game he just whenever he got the ball he just turned around and passed it back to Isa Suleiman no matter what position he was in they just given him the ball way too many times to me um, I think that was a real leap uh, a real problem for Victoria's game is that back four. Uh, Babel Moomin next to uh, Issa Suleiman in the middle is only 22. He's just come from the Danish league. He's not much like mm. experience at t- sort of top flight football. Um, but Sacco, their right back, he's, he's, he's good enough. But yeah, it's the rest of that back line that just, I think there's a real, real problems there. You look at um, Pedro Henrique and Vinacio, who both left in the summer, both experienced centre-backs in this league. I've, a real big loss. And I, I don't know how much that was to do with Thiago in their, in their departures, but um, it wasn't a good game for Vittorio defensively. Well, just to be fair to Isa, I mean, he also, it's also worth saying that he also had probably Vittorio's best chance to score. Uh, in the first half, maybe second to Andre Andre's opportunity with that lovely outside of the foot cross from Koreshma. But the thing I wanted to pick up on was how few chances Victoria had, and not through their lack of ability, but just from how effective Sporting were offensively. I think what we're seeing is, although there were defensive mistakes with Victoria, of course, uh, Sporting's ability to use positive front foot football to overcome teams. I mean, Victoria had very few chances to score. Uh, mainly because Sporting was so relentlessly attacking that they had very few chances to even get out of their own half. And I think that's one of Sporting's most effective attributes at the moment is their ability to pacify teams just by being so relentlessly attacking. It was the press from Sporting that really caused Vittorio problems and that backline could not keep hold of the ball at all. At one point through the game, though, um, Pepelu came on for the injured Agu in midfield and they he was sort of he almost dropped into that back line and they're sort of matching sporting for their 3-4-3. Three, three. And that did seem to work at parts when they were going man for man. They did seem to have a bit more joy in that first half, at least. And then, yeah, um, when sporting got the second late on that first half, that was it, really. To go back to Ruben Al- Almarin, this display is probably their best this season. Mm. I've, they've obviously had the game against Porto where they got the draw, but otherwise they're... they're the games they've played haven't been that challenging, to be completely honest. I think they 
we can't get too excited but then yeah this performance i think is is the statement this is the sort of they're here now to really challenge for the tides i feel yeah it was a fantastic performance as you say probably one of their first real challenges after drawing with porto game they should have won by the way let's not forget that um i know we both wanted to bring this up barney because we both read this article uh, an article on espn this week talking about the six most promising young managers uh, working in Europe, of which they named Ruben Amorim as one, alongside the likes of Julian Nagelsmann. Yeah, and the article basically sets out his credentials as one of the best young managers in Europe, not just in Portugal, certainly backed up by their league position this year. The thing I wanted to mention to you, though, Barney, was, and now we're getting into the realms of conspiracy theory, but with George Jesus struggling at Benfica and with Ruben Amorim's uh, association with Benfica as a player, is it possible that in the future we could be seeing Ruben Amorim as the head coach at Benfica? There's, I think that's a long way down the line, if I'm honest. I think, like, to, to distract from this, what he's doing with sporting, though, like, I think it's remarkable. I mean, what is he, 35? Mm. Apart from the Braga job last season for a few games, this is his first top job. He's brought in several youngsters into the squad, start, like, giving them minutes as well. Um, no real big signings at all for Sporting. I mean, obviously, Maria, but apart from that, he's got this squad and he's playing in such a good system, a brave system as well. Mm. You know, you think how attacking those wingbacks are, they could easily get caught out. I, I'm so impressed with him. I, the only other thing to say really is, I think them getting knocked out of Europe is a blessing. I think it set, puts them in a very strong position. I mean, yeah, let's not forget... Benfica played three games in seven days. That's a lot of games. And to, ha- to be able to just sort of concentrate in the league, I think it's going to be really important for them. Yeah, I think it's fair to say if they were competing in the Europa League, as much as we just talked about how they've got strength and depth up front, I think they would need more strength and depth in places like central midfield and at centre-back. Nonetheless, taking nothing away from the fact that this is another fantastic result from Sporting Lisbon, and they very deservedly sit top of the league with seven games played. Right, but to round up our analysis of the big three this week, we're going to touch on Porto. You've had a much better week, bouncing back from their disappointing 3-2 defeat to Passos Ferreira, with a fantastic Champions League win, 3-0 over Marseille, and then a very solid 3-1 win over Porto Melens in the league this week as well. It didn't look like it was going to be straightforward from the beginning of the game, though. That's a very good point, actually, yeah. So for anybody who didn't watch this game, Porto ran out 3-1 winners by the end of it, but it started off with a bit of a heart-in-mouth moment when uh, Porto Menendez went ahead. And fair play to them, I thought they were playing well. It was a good goal for Beto, I think, their striker. I think he scored his first goal for the club. Lovely whipped-in ball from the wing and a diving header. Every time I see Porto concede, you just look at that back line and you just, it's an absolute shambles every oh. time. Albert. Like, I think Sanusi loses it quite hard at the pitch and he just takes way too long to realise he's got to start checking back. And then um, Chance Mamemba just loses his man as well. I was saying to you before we started recording, Barney, it's incredible how by losing Alex Tellers and then losing Pepe to injury, their defence has gone from one of the most solid defences in the league to just looking like completely all over the place, really. Well, to put it in numbers, uh, they, last season, for the whole season, they conceded 22 goals. And now they've already, and this season they've conceded 10 um, already, which is like wow. seventh worst in the, in the league. That is bad, man. It's really bad. It's bad. And they cannot be relying on Pepe to be saving their defence, especially at his age. But like I said, they did manage to grind out a win. And I have to say, I don't expect much from Porto Menendez, quite a small team, but I was a little bit disappointed in them. I mean, they started off so positively and they must have taken heart from a team like Passos Ferreira putting in a great performance against Porto last week. But it just seemed like once Porto managed to get a goal or two back, their heads just dropped. And if you watch the if you watch the highlights of this game, when you watch the third goal that Porto score, bearing in mind at this point that Porto Menendez are only 2-1 down, there's still the chance that they can get a, a draw from this game, which would be a great result. But there's just some really sloppy defending and really lazy, I thought, tracking back, which meant a really easy third goal for Porto. But Porto won't mind. It's three points on the table when they really needed it. They obviously lost their first Champions League game against Manchester City, but have since won against Olympiacos and Marseille. Barney, what would it mean for them to get out of that group in the Champions League? Well, I think firstly, it would be the, the financial boost to the club. Mm. That would be quite important. And I think, yeah, it's, it, it's quite clear that they are putting a lot of... Um, focus on the Champions League uh, you look at some of their selections for the last few games in the league you know there's been um, quite a few changes made but yeah I mean particularly in this game though I think 
it was quite surprising for me that Conscious Tower sort of took a rebuild off about 33 minutes and brought on Mediterranean. Yeah. And that was a complete tactical change. And with everyone sort of calling Mediterranean to start, I thought it was, you know, it's, it's almost as if he was admitting he was wrong in his selection. Um, quite big for him to do. You, when you think about the sort of guy he is, he's not sort of personally prone to do that. But it did change it. And Marega and him up, up top were sort of with um, Luis Diaz, who had a fantastic game, and um, Tecatino or Corona on the right. Um, when they had those four in the attack, it was it looks much better with, for them. Yeah, the other player I wanted to mention was Sergio Oliveira. Um, I thought another great performance. I mean, we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, but um, I feel like he's going to be such a big player for them this season, particularly with the loss of Danilo. So underrated as well, especially it happens a lot to central midfielders. They don't really take the limelight, but we talked about his goal and assist contribution earlier. Uh, he looks like, aside from maybe Luis Diaz, Porto's best player at the moment. Just looking at the rest of the squad, I mean, they've got Meccano to come back in at the back, who I think could help out in that back line, I think. And then also, uh, it's just interesting with um, Felipe Anderson, isn't it? I, was he even in the squad of this game? And then I think Conscious has come out and said he's just not adapting quick enough. Bit of a bizarre one, isn't it? I mean, that transfer stank of opportunism. It, it happened really late on in the window when obviously West Ham had just decided they wanted to get rid of this player. Porto sort of put their hands up and said, yep, we'll take him. I'm sure that was a decision that was made without consulting Sergio Conceição. But he's obviously a player with a lot of talent. So I'm sure there'll be a place for him in the squad. But up front and on the wings are not where Porto need help at the moment. It's that I had an idea for a name for this section. We could call it uh, Look at the Tabella. Very Those nice. Portuguese for table. Very nice. Someone's uh, been doing their Duolingo. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's obviously the international break next week. Um, and then the Tacada Portugal's next games that these teams will be playing in. So Sporting will effectively be top of the league in Australia for three weeks on a rather healthy 19 points. Fantastic. Braga and Benfica both on 15 points. But this is interesting. Braga takes second thanks to their head-to-head record with Benfica, not their goal difference. Interesting. Which is something we don't have in the Premier League. Right. Um, okay. So thanks to that win on Sunday, that they've put them above them there. Uh, Porto then four for 13 points, uh, followed by Riav, uh, Vittorio Guimaraes, CD Nacional and uh, Santa Clara all on 10 points. A decent win for C National over Gil Vicente on Saturday. I don't know if you saw this, but C National's keeper saved two pens in this game. No way, then, did he um, really? Yeah, yeah. I should have had him in the fantasy. But who, should have had the captain, know? mate. <laughs> um, I'd uh, bloody Samuelino's captain, he didn't even play. Um, <laughs> More on that later. <laughs> and then, yeah, Brian Rochas, not Brian Riascos, scored mm. an amazing diving header in the last minute. Alisal beat Maritimo 2-1 to go ninth with nine points. Uh, then you've got Passos, uh, Moriens and Tondeo with eight points. And a surprise win for Tondeo. Um, they beat Santa Clara on the weekend. We were, ha- we were hammering them last week. Yeah, we were, but they did very well. I mean, is that their f- I'm not sure if that's their first one of the season, but yeah, big for them to, to jump up three points, especially when it's looking quite congested down that area of the table. And with Santa Clara sort of performing so well recently as well. Mm, definitely. Um, then Belenens and Maritino both from seven points. Belenens got a nice draw with Real for the weekend. Um, and then this is the most interesting part, I guess, is the, a lot of movement at the bottom of the table. Ferenc and Boa Vista played on Saturday. Boa Vista is obviously coming off the, um, their winning against Benfica. Ferenc having sort of struggled constantly this season. And um, yeah, so happy for Ferenc, man, to, to be him. Barney, I've got a big smile on my face and you know exactly why. It's because our man Ryan Gould Scored, got a goal and an assist, inspired his team to their first win of the season. I'm so happy. I've been rooting for them all season. They've let me down so many times. But uh, what a good result for them. Fantastic. I mean, they really, really needed that. Like you said, Boa Vista, who were probably flying high psychologically after their win against Benfica. Yeah, and a great great finish by Ryan as well. Did you see the highlights? Yeah, lovely finish. Um, also, Angel Gomez got a goal as well. Uh, another one of our boys. But the way Bovis played against Benfica was that they went to, with five at the back. They changed system um, and it worked so well. And I just don't understand why they wouldn't keep the same system. Um, mm. They had they went back to a back four rather than a back five. And there was, a, they, you know, the wingers, the wingbacks weren't getting up as much. And yeah, really surprising me. Well, maybe the mindset for them was that five at the back was seen as a more kind of defensive counter-attacking formation and going to Ferenz, they wanted to be on the front foot, uh, you know, uh, and have more attacking players on the pitch. But... It, it clearly didn't work because Ferenc outplayed them throughout the whole game. But I feel a bit similar with this with um, Porto in a way because I think they should be playing further back. They sort of, I know they lost against Man City, but they sort of, that defensive line looks okay, better than it has been when they've been going before. And I, I don't know, I I think if you've got a good thing, you should, you should stick to it. But regardless, um, 
Bovis has been given Fika and then Ferenc winning against Bovis has taken them both out of the relegation zone, uh, which is great. And then, yeah, you have uh, Gil Vicente dropping into 17th with four losses in a row now. And then Porto Men's bottom on four points. I've watched both those teams this season now, but I mean, both of them are similar. I feel they've got great attacking players in that those teams, but it's, it's the defence and a little bit of um, game management as well for me. Yeah, I've also watched both of them. And I, I think, like what you said, they've got positive attributes. They've shown good moments and they've shown that they can play well here and there. But yeah, they don't look like they've got quite the squad quality or squad depth to really compete at this level. Right, well, we're moving on to our team in focus, the part of the podcast where each week me and Barney do a bit of research and try and learn more about one of the more mid-table or less famous teams. Our team in focus last week was Monolens, uh, so if you want to go back and listen to that, you can do. But this week we'll be fo- focusing on Passos Ferreira, and that was really instigated by their fantastic performance against Porto uh, last week. They obviously didn't play this week, but we'll be keeping an eye out on their results in the future. But just to touch on their history, they're based in Passos de Ferreira in the Porto district of northern Portugal. Interestingly, another team from the kind of central northern region of the country, which seems to be absolutely chock full of great football teams with great football in that region and great port houses as well always a bonus <laughs> <laughs> they're a relatively new team founded in 1950 uh, but they emerged sort of out of a non-professional club which is around since around about 1930 which was then named sport club Passens, which formalized as a professional team in 1950 called football club vasco de gama uh, but the club truly emerged as we know it today in 1961 when they, ne- when they renamed as Passos de Ferreira and changed their kit from one which was previously identical to the Porto kit to their sort of distinctive, uh, very individual yellow kit that we see them in today. I'm a big fan of that kit. I, I do like a yellow kit. You don't see it very yeah. often, do you? No, I like it. And the green shorts, yeah. No. It's quite um, bold colours, isn't it? The green, and then they've got a bit of red on the badge as well. And to be fair, they really are a team with quite a decent history. Um, it seems like they had a real golden period, really, in the early to mid-2000s. They've been a mainstay in the Primera Liga in general since the 1990s. And in the 21st century, they've only dropped down to the second tier for one season at a time on two occasions. And on both occasions, they returned immediately to the Primera Liga as champions. They've actually qualified for Europe in, for the Europa League twice in 2007 and 2010. Although they never quite made it to the group stages. But their biggest achievement to date is certainly qualifying for the Champions League in 2010. They'd finished third in the league domestically the season before ahead of the likes of Braga and Sporting. But they couldn't make it past the qualification opponents, Zenit. But still, fantastic achievement nonetheless. And in terms of other honours, their domestic honours are combined to second and third division championships. But they made the finals of the Tassa de Liga on two occasions, both within the last 10 years, losing both times to Porto and Benfica respectively. I think it's um, when you said they qualified for the Champions League in 2010, that's that's absolutely incredible. Yeah, in recent memory as well. I think the thing that I'm learning from doing these little uh, this research into some of these teams is that it seems perhaps in the last ten to twenty years, those spots around the Europa League or the or the third Champions League spot were much more competitive. It was much more open. Perhaps these days we're used to Vittoria Gimaraes and Braga and teams like that taking up those positions. But it seemed like it was a lot more open in the past. Yeah, I mean, and, and Passos were a team that I'd never really heard of until we started this podcast. I think we also discussed how we want to sort of look into these teams and we thought one good thing was actually to look at their head-to-head against the big three in previous seasons to sort of, so we know what to expect when we're looking at, um, when we see them playing like you know, Benfica Sporting, whatever. And obviously they beat Porto last Friday, which was a fantastic result. But I mean, um, looking at last season, they lost to Porto twice, lost to Benfica twice, lost to Sporting twice. Wow! And they they beat Braga once and Real once, which is sort of a, a sort of I think a good sort of sign of what standard that this team is. So this result against Porto last week is I think an absolutely incredible one. And I think quite a bit of credit's got to go to the manager Pepper. He's previously managed Tondea Moriens, so he's been in this league before, um, and he's never been relegated, which I think is. Um, which I think is very important for this team. I, I They finished 15th last season, so they were around that area. They're just another one of these teams who, you know, they could easily finish in the top half. They could easily finish right down low in the bottom half. 
they've had a mixed bag, apart from the Porto game, they've had a mixed bag of results, I felt, so far this season. Um, they stick with their formation pretty much week in, week out. It's just going to go 4 3 3. They set up with a very robust midfield and with uh, Lewis Carlos. I think uh, he's been there for donkey's years. Uh, he's now 35. And the Canadian Estacrea, who we mentioned a little bit last week, they like to have their bit of flair on the wings. And then um, Douglas Tang is very much their big man at top as an outlet, which they do like to use quite a lot. I mentioned Douglas Tank. Um, I think he's injured at the moment, unfortunately. Um, but he's it was a big player for them last season. He got 11 goals. Um, and then when you look at his past, uh, he's a bit of a journeyman, really. He played a lot in Brazil and then went to Japan, then went to Mexico. And he was actually playing in the Thailand League oh, wow. before he moved over to Passos um, in 2018. Um, so like a real interesting story there. Is that his first time playing in Europe? Yes, yeah, just Mexico and Japan and Brazil before that. Another player who stood out for me, Barney, has actually been Luther Singh uh, on the wings. I think he's on loan from Braga, isn't he? South African international. Yeah, um, he's really impressed me as well. Um, and then this setup as well that Pepper plays, he is allowed a lot of freedom and, um, you know, he's very much encouraged to sort of take on players. Uh, and yeah, he's impressed. I think um, Harold Ferrer on the other side, we spoke last pod, but he was very impressive on the right as well. My favourite player, Albert, uh, I know last week you said uh, we sort of joked about the Douglas Tank being a player I sort of see myself in, um, but it's actually Mohamed Diaby for me. Um, okay. He hasn't started many games. He usually comes on. He's six foot five. He plays in the central mid. Um, real lanky guy. He's, <laughs> he's got so, he's so silky, man. He's a bit like a Pogba. Like, you know, he's, he's mm. a big player, but can easily dark fast players. Um, yeah, he's. Uh, I've liked watching him play. I mean, like I said, he he comes on late in games, but he's very comfortable in the ball. Um, and then obviously a threat from set pieces when he when he's on the pit. And then yeah, I also wanted to mention Dor Jan, who um, was really impressed against Porto, coming in for the injured Douglas Tank. He came from the Israeli league. Came for over for ninety thousand euros. Wow. I was trying to find um, a similar like transfer that happened this like for a similar fee. I couldn't, it was quite hard to find, but I looked into most League Two clubs, their record transfer fee is over £100,000. <laughs> like to put that wow. in perspective. Yeah. So I think that's been a, an absolute steal, and I think he looks like a good player as well. Well, it's been a bit of a mixed bag for them this season, Barney. So it might be a bit of a difficult one, but as always, going to ask you for your predictions about where, they, where they'll finish and who you think their top goal scorer might be. Yeah, like you said, they haven't been consistent at all this season, so it's been a bit hard to gauge. But I, I think we shouldn't take away from this big statement of that win against Porto. Um, Pep has been with this group of players now for a little while now. Um, he's obviously no mug, like, you know, he's kept teams out from, uh, kept teams from being relegated. And I think perhaps now with this team, he's had a bit more time and he can start to do things uh, with this squad. They didn't really lose many players in the, the summer. Uh, they've they managed to keep their starting 11 together pretty much. Um, Douglas Tank's the obvious top goal scorer for me. I think uh, despite George Jan's um, good performance against Pauls, I think Douglas Tank will get his place once he comes back for injury. And then, yeah, Lufus Singh, like you mentioned, um, he's, he's looked exciting and he's looked dangerous. And also, yeah, I mean, do keep an eye out for Mohamed Diaby. Because whenever he comes on, he's the tallest player by far. And, like, you can't miss him. Like. <laughs> so for anybody who is looking to watch Passos de Ferreira play, who are they up against next? Well, unfortunately, this weekend their game was suspended against Moran's for a number of players both teams coming down with COVID uh, they've got their international break obviously now and then it'll probably be in the attack of the Portugal where they play Udi Oliveirens who are currently 13th from Liga Pro so um, quite a gap between them I think they'll be confident they can dispatch to them we talked about it last week in the podcast but yeah it, the highlights from the Porto game are definitely good uh, ones to watch um, that was a fantastic game and a, a really really impressive performance for Right, so this week, Al, it's your turn to pick the moment of the week. What stood out for you this weekend? I think I've got one of the hardest weeks to pick because there was just so much going on in the last seven days. It's been insane. So we could have picked either of Benfica's losses. We could have picked Sporting Lisbon playing fantastically well again. But it wouldn't be the Long Ball Football Podcast if I didn't give a massive shout out to Ryan Gould and his performance for Forens this week. So my moment of the week is, of course, Forens 3 Boa Vista one in which Ryan Gould scored one and assisted one so we'll make sure to share the highlights of that game on our Twitter page at Ball, so you can go and follow us there actually we already shared today an article by 
one of the journalists we follow and we're big fans of called Jamie Farr. He writes regularly for Portugal.net, which is an American website which specialises in English language news of Portuguese football, which we highly recommend you follow. And we recommend you give Jamie a follow on Twitter as well. And it's about that time this week where we would usually recommend you a game from the Premier League to watch at the weekend. But obviously with the international break coming up, we can't do that. So what do you think is the best option, Barney? What should people tune into? Well, as we discussed earlier, the um, under-21s team for Portugal is full of um, league and loss players. Um, so I think it'd be quite good to try and catch some of their games. They've got quite a few. They've got uh, Belarus on Thursday, um, Cyprus on Sunday, and uh, they play the Netherlands uh, next Wednesday as well. Well, the game pick of that bunch, clearly, for my very own selfish reasons, is going to be Portugal under-21s versus Cyprus under-21s because they're going to come up against one of the most informed young strikers in League 2. Ruel Sotiriu, the Leighton Orient striker, came through the Leighton Orient Academy. Listen, all I'm saying is Diego Letty doesn't know what's going to hit him. <laughs> right, well, to wrap it up this week, we're just going to touch on our fantasy football teams just to see how we've been getting them this week. There's been some slow progression, I think, Barney. We've been getting better and better each week. I've, I've not. <laughs> <laughs> this has been an absolutely dreadful week man for me i tried i was trying to be way too way too smart i, I, I put samuelino as my captain because they were um i don't know why and then, <laughs> and then i put mansur the santa clara left back as my vice captain um, oh my because i just thought they're playing tondeo and they were guaranteed clean sheet and obviously <laughs> And that's it. My highest score was a sporting defenders. Both gave me six points. Otherwise, that was it. Two points all round. So I got 31 points for the week. So what about you? Well, I've clearly got much more of a grip of this than you because I had Ryan Gould as my captain. One of my oh, most no inspired way. fantasy football decisions I've ever made. And yeah, other than that, I did pretty decently. I had Angel Gomez who got a goal. Rafa who got an assist for Benfica. Nuno Mendes who got me six points. Other than that, it wasn't a, a, a great week, but yeah, Ryan Gould as my captain got me 22 points. So Tell you what my problem is, man. My problem is I'm too ruthless. I take players out too quickly. I had Ryan Gould at the beginning of the season. He's gone and he's scoring now. I had Albert <laughs> Ellis as well last week, but I was like, what am I doing bringing Albert Ellis in? I take him out and then he scores against Benfica. I'm just too I'm too harsh on players. I need to stick with my gut. No. And then the COVID-19 and everything as well because <laughs> Samuelino's got it and then Triguria, the Tondea keeper's got it and Babaka and the assays back in there. And, oh, I'm not happy. Not happy at all. Well, look, the new announcement this week of a potential COVID-19 vaccine potentially will be doing wonders for Barney's fantasy football. So tune in next week to find out if things make a difference. But for now, we're going to say thank you for listening. Uh, and we'll see you next week. I'll catch you next week, Barney. See you later.